Hello and welcome to the SOP podcast brought to you by the Science of Psychotherapy Academy and me, Richard Hill, the managing editor of the Science of Psychotherapy magazine. We love bringing you these podcasts, uh, fascinating people, fascinating topics. And of course, no exception today, as we talk to Kendall Showerman, who is a psychotherapy practitioner working with ketamine-assisted therapy. Now, I just love the sound of his work. It's Contemplative Ketamine-Assisted Psychotherapy. And his study is at the Naropa University in uh, Colorado, which is a Buddhist-based private university. And I think that's going to be really interesting to get some of the background as to why he's doing it and what that's all about. And I'm going to ask him what happens. What is it like for the therapist and what is it like for the client? So remember, at the Science of Psychotherapy Academy, please come talk to us and look at what we do at the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. And uh, we'd love to have you become a member of the Academy where we have over a thousand hours of, of education, a lot of it with CEU points and uh, certificates of, uh, of completion. So that's a fabulous opportunity for you not to be missed, as is this podcast. So let us go and talk to Kendall, uh, and we will have all the information about his website on the show notes. That's his wonderful website, madragawellness.com. So off we go to the USA and Kendall Showerman. Well, welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy, the SOP uh, podcast, Kendall Showerman. It's so wonderful to have you. We've been, uh, uh, it's taken a little while to get to it, but I'm so glad we uh, we were patient and made it happen. How are you today? Yeah, thank you, Richard. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Excited to talk with you. And whereabouts are you coming to us from in this wonderful I, world of ours? Yeah, I'm in the United States. I'm in Denver, Colorado. Ah, beautiful, beautiful place. Now, it's a there's a lot of interesting stuff here, and we've got quite a bit to to cover. But first of all, let's just learn a little bit about you, because it wasn't just a, a straight up pathway. And as uh, as I did in the introduction, this fascinating. I love the combination of the words contemplative, ketamine, assisted psychotherapy. All those those things have got such interesting things. But how did you get uh, up to this point? Could you give us a little potted uh, timeline of your experience. Yeah. Um, so I've come to this work of being a psychotherapist um, as a career change in midlife. Um, I'm in my late 30s now. And um, uh the turning point for me when I think I really was um, able to maybe have a look outside of the path I was going on in my life um, was with the assistance of plant medicine, um, particularly ayahuasca, actually lucky enough to get connected with a amazing community um, who would come to Colorado a couple times a year. And um, that experience um, really opened me up to uh, things that I needed to heal in myself just possible things that I didn't even know were possible before that experience. And that set me off on a trajectory to going back to school um, to do this work, to be able to hold space for others. And, and I knew I wanted to be able to incorporate um, altered states, um, you know, plant medicines with that work. Um, and it wasn't clear at that time, even um, it was before a lot of this renaissance has been happening in the United States with local state and now on some level we're getting there with federal legislation making it you know um, fully legal to do this type of work with clients in the in the um, psychotherapeutic container yeah it's i mean it's it's a two-edged sword uh the the the, the intervention of of the authorities uh, but i think it's a necessary one because the other side of things without that um you, we always run the the danger of cowboys uh as we call as sort of that that term but the, um, I think, and even really well-intentioned uh, people, but it, they just have more of an intuitive sense of what they're doing. Um, but you need to have a balance of this, uh, you need to, of the knowledge. So, in your psychotherapy, though, as you you learnt that, I just before we get in there, I think this is also very interesting. Is the university that you studied at uh, called Naropa University in in Colorado, mm. and. Uh, Wow, what an interesting 
uh, perspective that that university uh, enabled you to. Uh, anyway, I'm rabbiting. You tell yeah. me. You, you were there. You you know. Yeah. I'm just fascinated by it. Tell us a bit yeah. about Naropa University and the course and the way they approach learning. Yeah, Naropa was um, was an amazing um, transformational experience for me. Um, so it's in Boulder, Colorado. It's a small private university um, that has a, a small undergraduate, but the, the graduate program um, is kind of what it's known for, and particularly their mental clinical health counseling um, program. And there's five different kind of areas of specialty within that program. And um, Naropa was the first um, Western university, accredited Western university that was founded by a Buddhist monk. Um, and that was back in the 1970s, um, Chogyong Trumpa Rinpoche. Um, so a really beautiful um, merging of, you know, Western science, um, the, you know, of course, we learn everything around like, okay, what are the important things to know what has got us this point in terms of Western psychotherapy, but then we bring in the thousands of years of wisdom of Tibetan Buddhism, and these Eastern traditions, which is a, um, a lot of ways, you know, a lot more focused on your personal experience. Um, and in the program at Naropa, so I did the contemplative psychotherapy and Buddhist psychology um, focus. Um, it's just amazing. Um, it blends the theoretical learning with the personal experience of you have your you have your own meditation practice, and you have a one of the professors is assigned as your meditation guide for the three years that you check in with, um, combined with the group um, cohort model. So a cohort of about 25 of us and a lot of classes, um, group learning, you know, um, group therapy learning where we would sit down as the whole cohort, you know, one of our classes was for 90 minutes a semester and there's no topic. It's what's happening in the group dynamics, which can be beautiful and messy and uncomfortable. Um, and then the last piece, which I think is just so amazing is one of our courses each semester is a two week meditation retreat that we all go together to the, um, Drala Mountain Center, which is a um, retreat center up in northern Colorado. And for two weeks there, we're in a container of our own personal uh, meditation practice, sitting together as a group, you know, Dharma talks, they would call them, but a lot of those focused on Buddhist teachings. But of course, there's the, okay, how does this apply um, to be a psychotherapist to your own healing, to your own process? Um, so yeah, that whole experience, and it was a three-year program, so very intensive over three years of getting to know yourself. So then you can, um, coming from a, a clear attuned space to be able to then offer support and guidance um, for your clients once you graduate. So really, really amazing, amazing experience. Yes. This, 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 um, focus that, that Buddhism and Buddhist teaching has is, is on the self awareness is the self discovery. And, uh, and then almost, in doing that, you're able to dissociate or dis, um, dissipate the, the the unnecessary importance of self uh, that we tend yeah. to have in a lot of Western and a lot of Western things. Whether the whether the self is a, a fabulous, wonderful thing that can conquer all, or whether the self is a terrible, uh, debased thing that that you know has to um, reform itself. Uh, right. Right. And these are these are just the beginning. We've just touched on and i can hear people that say whoop here we're going down the philosophical uh, <laughs> uh, so we won't go down that rabbit hole for now but we'll just leave those those contemplations um yeah. uh for for people and this idea of of learning technical detail in the framework of contemplative awareness is uh mm -hmm. Very exciting, very exciting. Uh, uh, it was a bit, a bit like me in acting school, except we didn't have any intellectual <laughs> awareness. <you know? laughs> uh, but then we go down and you, uh, uh, now you've given that that indication of where your interest in the psychedelics, in the, the mind uh, changing, this changing of mental state using external uh, uh or taking uh, ingestion of things. Yeah. Um, there are many ways in which other people, we talk about that change in mental state. But mm -hmm. the first thing that I uh, I just want to throw in there is as you, you come in to, to discuss a little bit about the nature of your ayahuasca experience and what that led on to was because I, I go to Einstein's, uh, well, it's sort of 
a, a bit uh, transformed. But fundamentally, he said, it's very difficult to solve a problem with the same mindset that created it. Right. So we need to shift these mindsets. And this can be very, very difficult in our culture. And that's a part of the whole deal. Can we now just get into some of the frameworks, perhaps a little bit of your experience and then how you relate that to the to the process that you utilize in assisting other people to uh, go through this? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I think that quote from Einstein is very appropriate right in this context of um, how, you know, what are ways that we can assist ourselves and then in this context of being a therapist, our clients in being able to have an experience to shift their perspective enough that they actually see that it's possible or feel that it's possible to change things, to change these embedded um, processes, um, you know, that they learned usually most, most often at a young age. Um, like I mentioned before, for myself, it was um, initially, it was through ayahuasca. Um, I'm so grateful for the group that I found and that I sat with, they created a very safe, beautiful, very um, deep container. Um, and at that point in my life, I didn't have regular support in terms of like a therapist or um, someone that I could regularly connect with to help to integrate, like, what was that that just happened? And at that time, I had um, two young children, uh, my daughter and son, my son had just been born, actually. So there was a, a, a lot of challenge, um, the first 18 months or so of um, regularly sitting with this group. Um, in a lot of ways, my day to day life, it was more of a challenge than it was before, because these experiences had churned up so much. And I, I was like, well, what do I do with these things? How do I put it in the context? Meanwhile, I have two children, you know, under two years old, um, that it's like, well, you don't really have time to be, you know, going off and sitting in a cave and really contemplating these things because life is happening. Um, so that really informed um, the way that I um, am doing my work now. And in particular, why right now I'm choosing to focus on ketamine as the tool that I'm um, using with clients, um, you know, in Colorado, um, we are uh, on the forefront in terms of legislation. And, and last fall, we did pass decriminalization statewide for psilocybin, and the framework is in process. Um, they're working on the what it'll look like for therapists to legally offer psilocybin I'm as a licensed therapist. So while that technically would be an option for me right now in terms of offering that to clients um, here in Colorado, um, I just have found ketamine in my own personal work and then now working with clients to be just hmm, a really amazing tool that in some ways, this is what I found, in some ways it's almost more appropriate, I think for us coming from a Western context, maybe appropriate is not quite the right word, but it, it just feels like a little bit easier of an experience to hmm. uh, step into that altered state, you know, because oftentimes even initially, I, I've been to the jungle in Peru to do ayahuasca, but initially it was the, the ayahuasca coming to the States um, and we were doing it here, but even with the the beautiful um, context of the culture that ayahuasca come from, there's a definitely um, a level of disconnect that can make it challenging of like, how do I now integrate into this, this society and this culture? With ketamine, I found it to be, um, we could talk about all the different layers of maybe why, but I found it to be um, just an experience that is more um, easily accessible for maybe someone in a Western context to have to have an experience that'll help them view, you know, appreciate their consciousness from different perspectives um, with healing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about a couple of things. I mean, one of the as I look through the, the different words when I'm researching and I've been looking at ketamine for a while myself, uh, not so much uh, in my own practice, but to understand and and to be able to know where to refer uh, people with various needs and the one of the words which of course uh, jumped out at me here was uh, you know it's a dissociative it creates a, a a dissociative sort of state and then of course this ties in quite uh, comfortably with the einstein quote you know if you if you are dissociating from the state you're in you're moving into another state which clearly is going to be a different state than you're in the first place so the logic right. of that makes a lot of sense but are there uh I know with, with psilocybin and things, you actually can have delusionary um, experiences, which can be very helpful because they, uh, uh, it, it, when they're assisted and they're, they're interpreted 
afterwards. So that's almost like like metaphor uh, type of work. Mm. What, what's yeah. what's that feeling uh, with the ketamine work? Uh, that sense of still being within your own body or moving. What are some of the frameworks there of the sort of experiences that the the client is having or that the person is having? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so as you as you said, ketamine, so it's a disassociative anesthetic. Um, my experience has been that while, okay, so if we have certain, say, ayahuasca, there is all of this culture and um, work around it. And it the personality, let's say, or the soul of ayahuasca, oftentimes it's grandmother energy is how you have it. They describe it and how um, so a lot of the um, experiences you have is in with a container of a relationship with grandmother energy that's you know help assisting in your healing um, with psilocybin. Oftentimes, I've heard it referred a little bit more like grandfather or actually tobacco, I guess, more grandfather, the traditional use of tobacco. But psilocybin um, is more of like you're connecting to the mycelial network, right? You're experiencing oneness um, with yourself and how you're connected to other beings and other um animals and plants. Ketamine, I find really interesting because so it's a man-made substance and the disassociative component, um, most maybe like purists in the psychedelic world, they actually don't consider ketamine a psychedelic. Um, and I can understand why, like the mechanism that it interacts with your brain is much different than the tryptamines that you find um, the psychoactive components of um, psilocybin or ayahuasca. So it is a different pathway. Um, but ketamine, um, I like to describe it as it's a much more like maybe open palette of experience because of the disassociative piece. So you're going into maybe more of a void type experience, generally speaking. And, you know, of course, for each person and each time they do it, it can be different. Um, but with ketamine, I found it to be, yeah, much more of a wide range. So um, with the importance of the set and setting, right, with your mindset going into it, the physical environment is a setting, um, having a therapist that you trust and you built that container with who that knows you well, knows your personal history, creating a safe container, it really can open up um, a field um, where that, yeah, I think it's just much, a much more wide experience that can happen um, with ketamine. And, and I, you know, in my personal experiences, maybe I could, I could share, you know, on, on one um, guided journey that I had, um, it was intramuscular ketamine, which involves, so it's with a needle um, into your arm. And um, that experience brought me, um, the majority of it was a really healing experience about one specific past episode in my life that, that was actually related to a needle with um, helping my kids when they were going in to get um, for a doctor's appointment and a challenging experience they had. And then me having guilt and around like, oh, I shouldn't have, I should, there's all these things I could have done. So this wouldn't have been traumatic for my kids. And I had a experience of being back in that hospital office and witnessing it again from a different perspective, but able to not be so impacted in a negative way of in my own guilt around how I could have done this differently. Um, so you could look at that as one thing, oh, it focused on this one thing, as opposed to other experiences with ketamine where it was much more of a, um, you know, I'm, my consciousness is like floating through landscapes and there's things that are kind of esoteric and I'm not quite sure, but what they mean. And then other things that are um, um, connecting back to that feel um, yeah, just more of like a deeper process that wasn't so focused on one thing. So I think it's a really wide palette. Is what I yeah. Think. Oh, that, that's so interesting. I mean, that, that opportunity, I mean, we certainly have, uh, in sort of cognitive or imaginative and, and certainly some of the visual therapies, this, this way of seeing things in a different way, re-rehearse or re-experiencing some some ex a negative experience to find out the positive alternatives but this is just opening you up and and actually offering you i'm you know i'm sort of the way i'm hearing it is is in in a positive way is is they are these esoteric things they're metaphors they're they're alternative views they're things that we we uh we can question and and uh then investigate and what really jumps out in, in my head, I'm thinking of recreational ketamine use, which is kind of to get out of it. Uh, yeah. But this uh, use of it is you're trying to get into it. Uh, exactly. And yeah. anything that's taking you into a broader framework of experience is, uh, is obviously beneficial. And you've given us a couple of insights, insights there. But it, the, you don't just use ketamine. Like, 
here you go, where you go. This this whole right. title of this contemplative. So there's talk therapy. There's there's mindfulness. There's establishments of intentions. There's uh, creation of a, a safe space. How have yeah. you developed that? Is is it uh, fairly uh, uh, common amongst all therapists, or do you does each therapist individually create their own sort of these environments? And how do you do? that sort of process you know what's the yeah. what's the percentage of things you know these sort of hey i'm a client what are you going to do with me <laughs> yeah 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 i mean maybe first that that broader question about at least how i'm seeing and obviously this is really informed by a lot of like the local community here in denver and, and boulder um but i'm really seeing how um you know it really is an art of how you create what's authentic for you in terms of the container you're creating. Um, and, um, and then that informs oftentimes the type of client you're attracting. Um, so historically ketamine, right. was more in the medical setting IV um, which with it, which research shown like great results for treatment, resistant depression, um, acute suicidality. What I'm really excited about is um, in Denver, especially we're just seeing so much of, therapists who have had their own personal healing experiences um, with psychedelics and now bringing in what are the things that we've learned I'm speaking for myself what are the beautiful things that right most of us in western culture um, we had a lot of the rite and ritual um, ceremony kind of taken out of our culture there's a, there's not a lot of that that we're um, that's embedded that, that we really learn from our family or local community broadly speaking um, so being exposed to the ceremony in the container that is created um, first for me with ayahuasca um, and just the power of that, of being in community, of being able to be vulnerable and then a substance coming in as an aid um, when necessary. Um, so yeah, I've, I've found um, my process. I, um, so I mainly work with men um, and we're mainly looking at, um, you know, the negative effects of isolation in our society, um, work with a lot of fathers, uh, a lot of fathers of young children, um, a lot of times just looking at lack of purpose in their life, usually even related to their career, lack of connection to community. Um, how do I um, not feel disconnected in my different roles as a father, as a provider, as a husband, as a, as a friend? And so the process that I found um, the most helpful is really taking the time to develop the therapeutic relationship and container before we bring in ketamine. Um, so for me, that looks like we do a 90 minute intake, really going through their history, getting to know them. And then at least three uh, weekly 50 minute sessions after that. So basically we're looking at about a month at a minimum before we would then explore, would it feel right to enter uh, ketamine into this container? And oftentimes though, it's much longer than that. A lot of clients I have, you know, we've been seeing each other for six months and then now it feels like, okay, now it feels like this will be really beneficial. So that's one thing that I've really, I think was a shift for me. Cause initially I was like, you know, the medicine in this case, ketamine is um, like just so profound. Like let's bring it in as soon as we can. I, I think I had a mindset of that in practice that didn't really happen because I think the, you know, the work was, telling me like, oh, it doesn't feel right to bring it in this early. Um, so really building that therapeutic container first of trust, get really getting to know them. Um, and then we then we have that conversation of, is this gonna be helpful to talk about? Yeah, I absolutely love hearing that. Um, one of the things I do in, in, in my uh, therapeutic work is uh, I, I say to the therapists I'm teaching, how do you know your client is ready to start? And uh, it's a it's a, a question because of course they exactly that whether it's a ketamine whether it's an assisted thing whether it's a therapeutic method um, how do you know they're ready for it how do you know they're accepting uh, of it and uh, uh, very very few people have ever thought about that before so because uh, I love so that resonates a, a, a lot and there there are a couple of things in the process that I utilize a one called mirroring hands where we actually start off with the question of you know is there a connection are you ready. And quite often uh, the answer to people say, well, what, what if it says no? I said, well, then don't start that. Don't do that. Right, go, right. go elsewhere. Yeah. So there's a deal of your own sensitive, your own sensitive observation 
um, that goes into this. And you're so there's a there's certainly the client becoming comfortable and safe with you. And then, of course, uh, it sounds like it's you also becoming comfortable and uh, safe with them so that you're getting that feel. It's uh, uh, there's a degree of of knowledge base, but then also that degree of of wise intuition uh, base. And uh, yeah. this this can be tricky for people though, because they 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 want to have something regulated where they're not actually it's not, it's not sort of up to them a bit. Mm. I, I don't know. Is that something yeah. that that you have trouble with clients having that feeling, or with other people that you're training or talking to about? Yeah, it's a good question. Um... I mean, for myself, it's that part of it, and I, a big part of this, I think I credit the, the type of learning, um, you know, teaching that I received at Naropa, because um, often it doesn't feel too difficult for me. You know, there's been a few times, um, and I think maybe more of it is coming from, um, which, right, being aware of and then taking out, me having an experience of, knowing how often it's such a profound positive shift for people once we incorporate ketamine. So maybe just me a little bit of maybe caretaking the client of really wanting that so badly for them. But then um, a matter of if there's, you know, feelings that I'm having, thoughts that I'm having um, that you feel like they just, I don't know, cross some internal threshold that I'm like, something doesn't feel quite right. And, and usually I'm able to, you know, um, discern maybe what that is after a little bit of bringing it up with the client and we kind of going through it in a, in a session. And oftentimes maybe it's their, the issue they're having is, um, you know, it's maybe that they're needing a, a therapist, another therapist who has a, a specific type of training, training that, that I don't focus on. So maybe then it's me getting out of my own way of like, oh, well, you know, wanting to be the one to help this client and being like, well, it's not, it's not about me and grateful that in Denver and in Boulder, you know, this is a really a hotbed for this type of work that I do have a solid referral list of therapists who, you know, offering ketamine or not, or just, you know, um, a trauma specialist of just finding that how important it is going back to the community aspect to network one-on-one -on -one and go to group things with other therapists. So there's people that I really know and know what they focus on. So when that comes up, that's like something doesn't feel quite right. Let me explore it with the client and and then let them know, like, this isn't about, you know, anything wrong with you. This is about my um, kind of moral, ethical obligation within this field to provide you with the best container possible. And sometimes that means that it's not with us, you know, that it's not with me as the one that's going to be the one in this part of your journey to, to assist you. Yeah. So I, I think this is something that is that's coming up and, you know, we were talking a bit before about the client responsive idea that, that, that's, growing and I'm doing work on that that that's a safety measure for the for the client the the therapist saying I'm, I'm not doing this because I I want to or don't want to or you're good or bad or I'm right or wrong but yeah, I think right. this is the best most safe way for you to uh, experience your journey of uh, of discovery and and recovery and uh so that's 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 really I think that's a great generosity and and therapists and I the big lesson that I'd want to highlight there is that your best idea as a therapist is that it may not be me uh, right. i may not yeah. be the best person it's not like oh wow i've got a client and i really need clients because i've got the rent coming up you know yeah that's a tough balance there right especially if we're in i mean i'm in my own private practice right and so it, it is that direct um yeah there's not a set salary that i'm working on to pay the bills each month so it is it, it really is a um just a, a big learning process and yeah it's a, it's a tough one at times right yeah but wow. but i but also we don't want to uh, uh i don't want to exaggerate this as though you know every you know seven out of ten clients you're sending off this is just exactly. the occasion right. that right. more more often people are drawn to you they're already they've already screened you uh before you screen right. them yeah so very few mostly our clients are, uh, are very much engaged and so it starts with this contemplative, starts with this, this really uh, getting them into a place where they can start. Um, and in amongst that, of course, by the sounds of things, lots of other little journeys and uh, improvements and little uh, elements that they, they overcome. 
because that's another uh, context of so when you jump in straight away, like they've got a huge brick wall in front of them for we just use that metaphor. And then we say, well, take this and you'll get over that brick wall. It right. sounds really sensible. Just let's just bring the wall down a bit yeah. uh, to to yeah. its sort of to its hard stuff, to the stuff that's really difficult yeah. to shift. Right. Yeah. And the mindfulness work uh that just plays in and that again intuitively brought in depending on the needs of the client exactly yeah yeah i think of course informed by the from a buddhist perspective of what are ways that we can um assist the client in being able to understand their own awareness understand right ways that they maybe are quick to shift into react and there's right, and then maybe that millisecond of a gap, or maybe you know they're not aware of a gap. They're just something happens that triggers a response for them, and then they're in the reaction mode. And I really look at mindfulness, which formal sitting meditation can be a part of mindfulness. It doesn't have to be that. It can be right. Just just what are ways that we can help um, practical tools for the client to increase that gap? You know, and of course this is very subtle in lots of different areas, right? Unlimited areas in their life. But the the ways that it's really negatively maybe impacting their day to day life and their relationships in ways that they want to they want to change. What are tools that we can you know maybe one third of the time is a golden first to start depending upon the person of like to increase that gap where there's well maybe they're able to notice it for a second but still have the same reaction and maybe that's happening for a little bit and then now oh then the first time they're like I was actually able to stop remove myself from the situation and not react. Right. And those things that maybe look like little wins and that sometimes, you know, can feel like a long process, but bringing in mindfulness in the day to day um, just can be so helpful. And and then, again, as you spoke to before of like this wall that they're getting over, I look at that as a process of their understanding, you know, these different walls that come up, you know, what would be the best way to get over that wall or to get through the wall, right? What's the texture? What are the tools that I, to be able to climb it? Um, and then once we have um, a level of understanding there, then it's like, oh, then ketamine can be a really amazing tool to just really get beyond that wall. But now we have more context of it's not going in blind. Yes, yeah. I think that's a lovely comment. Oh, not going in blind. I've just sort of jumped on that, but immediately, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I think is a problem in a lot of areas. Um, we we the therapist throws the client in a bit at the deep end. The trouble, uh, of course, the thing is, a lot of times that can be fine. Um, so right. uh, I remember uh, uh, my great mentor Ernest Rossi talking about uh, suggestion, and it worked a lot in hypnosis area. And he said, um, you know, you, you give some suggestions and people improve, and uh, you start to get this rather, um, I, <laughs> you get this idea that your suggestions are doing the trick, where, right. and you get a little bit overwhelmed with your own importance, uh, and. That's a difficult thing, and I'm sure the Buddhist background just helps your um, your humbleness to stay to stay pure or say stay fluid in the frame. How, how do you find the, the the situation going there with that sense of of engagement, that relationship between you and the client? Yeah, um, yeah. Again, that grateful for the framework of Buddhist training of uh, something to come back to and rely on of if there are moments, say, in a session with a client, um, this would either be more, you know, most often in the ketamine experience, the client is internal for most of the experience. So at this point, kind of referring to whether it's a more standard talk therapy session or maybe during the integration process where we are having some more verbal dialogue. Um, really just trying to come back to my center and notice, am I really up in my analytical mind right now? Am I like, you know, really thinking of things that, oh, what's the next thing I could say that would, you know, like like you said, you know, be the, the perfect thing to say. Yes, and that I, brilliant thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, right. Which, I mean, that can be beautiful at times when that happens, but it's a very easy trap to fall into of then, where's my ego coming in that I'm, you know, so... Um, a lot of practices that we learned in Europa were, you know, really um, being aware of what you're noticing in yourself, whether you're, you know, physically what's coming up when a client's talking about a certain thing. Are you 
noticing heat changes in your body? Are you noticing that you're fidgeting or having the urge to take a drink from your coffee? Like really trying to come back and noticing what's happening for you and happen, you know, and this is of course a long process, uh, you know, um, over time to improve that and come back to, but, you know, trying to discern what, what is happening for me and, and what is happening for the client and where is this, that what's happening for me isn't serving the client and it's about me. So trying to come back to that. Yeah. Yes. That constant in the moment sort of self-feedback, personal feedback, experience feedback, uh, and, and, and applying it. Uh, that's, that's fabulous. Uh, just one thing I want to grab there that I want to just explore a little bit uh, in the process. Now, you're saying whilst they're in the ketamine experience, and it, it is a sedatory type of, uh, of, of chemical, so you're saying it's fairly internal, so it's fairly quiet, the, that period. So, so there's this buildup, which involves sort of talk, but then there's a, is it's a fairly quiet and you're a, you're a, a, a preserver or you're a carer. And then afterwards, just give us a quick look at those yeah. uh, before, mm -hmm. during and after uh, steps. Yeah. So the caveat here, I would say, is that not every um, therapist that I know is doing it this way, but I think the vast majority, I would 95% are kind of coming from more of the um, historical, I think like people are holding space underground type of model where it's, you know, you're providing a safe container and let the per let the client have their um, own internal journey and don't interfere. Um, there are some amazing, exciting things happening. And I just did a training last year for more like somatic interventions um, with training I did was with ketamine um, and or, or, or cannabis. And that came from more of like Peter Levine, um, you know, somatic therapy work. And that works a little bit more on psycholytic, so a little bit lower doses. So the client, so there is an ability to have communication and helping them track what's happening. So there's lots of options. Um, but but let, most, let's look at that. that that's sort yeah. of more somnambulistic yeah. type of. Frame. Yeah, and that's what I'm doing currently now is more of this. So it's more of um, with ketamine, so a dose and sublingual ketamine as I work with. So in, in the mouth of the lozenge. Um, and we initially we plan for a three hour session. Sometimes that can get adjusted down depending upon how the client's body reacts or system reacts. So we plan for three hours. We've done, um, you know, we've had at least months of building the container together and then specific uh, preparation sessions just focused on the next ketamine, on the first ketamine session coming up. So we're looking at, okay, what's your intention? What's, you know, all of the logistics of what this day is going to look like, um, answering any concerns, fears, anxieties the client might have, um, going through that process. And then um, for a couple of days leading up as well, there's some ways for them to prepare. Um, in the ayahuasca world, it's called like a dieta. But here it's, you know, since ketamine is a very safe substance, there's, there's less worry about um, having to be too specific, but helping them pre prepare their mind, body, and soul you know, for the journey. Um, so they would come in. I have my office, um, I kind of transform it into more of a ceremonial setup. Um, like the coffee table becomes an altar. Uh, I have a, a trifold mat that goes on the floor. So it's really informed by my experiences with ayahuasca, like creating this container that's a ceremony. And of course, that's, you know, tailored to the client's needs and what's going to be optimal for them. So that can look like with some clients who um, this resonates for them. We, we may pull a tarot card before if that's helpful for them. We may um, burn sage or incense before, um, you know, setting intentions in a way um, it just looks very different. It's really tailored to the client for some clients. They are, that is, does not resonate with them. So we, you know, set the container where it's authentic for me to a level, but then I'm not introducing anything that's not going to benefit them. Um, so we do a check-in of like any, any updates on what's happened maybe in the previous couple of days since the last preparation session, how are they coming in? Um, how are their, whether their, their intentions still feel true from what we've talked about before. Um, and then um, music is a very big part of the experience. So having a cre uh, playlist created and kind of tailored, and that's part of the preparation of, you know, kind of, it's going to be helpful for them. Um, just generally speaking, you know, no, no lyrics, especially in the language that the client speaks. So we're not bringing in um, things that, you know, could be distracting to their experience. Um, 
usually more on the calming, like nature-based sounds. And um, so start playing that music and then the client with sublingual, it's a novel experience that usually after one or two times the client gets used to, but you're, it's rapid dissolving within a couple minutes, but they're swishing it in their mouth lightly for about 12 to 15 minutes. So it takes a little getting used to maybe the first or second time. Um, and um, the, you can either swallow or spit after is different outlooks on that of different psychiatrists who the different prescribers have. But um, the method I've been using is then they, after they're swishing, they spit it out. So it's absorbed sublingually through their mouth. Yeah. And usually by the end of the 15 minutes, they are pretty deeply into the experience. Um, then they lay down on their mat, put an eye mask on. And most of the time, the majority of the experience, they're pretty fully internal. Um, so there's not a lot of that dialogue between us happening. That's not always the case. And it's not, I let them know there's not a right or a wrong way. If you're wanting to voice something to like name something for me to mark down that you don't want to forget, you know, so it, yeah, it can look a lot of different ways in, mm -hmm. in that regard. Um, but most of it is pretty internal um, and usually lasts, it, it really varies depending upon the dose and the client. So it takes a couple sessions sometimes to really dial that in, but between 45 minutes to an hour and a half of the client in the really deep internal part of their process. And then as they're coming out and maybe starting to take off their eye mask or, or sit up, um, then there can be oftentimes more integration happening um, with us in dialogue. Um, but it's really that part of it too. I'm also, as part of the preparation that clients know, um, our thinking mind can be very quick to want to like take back over control of the reins and make meaning of this right away. And sometimes that can be helpful, but I, I um, advise sometimes to, um, if that feels forced right now, you know, let's not force it. We can, you know, you can really be with the experience see if it's possible to lean into the questions more than seeking an answer right away. And we're gonna have an integration session within 24 to 72 hours after that we've scheduled. So there's gonna be time to integrate. We don't always have to force it right away. So sometimes sometimes amazing insights come in that last as we're you know, closing the container of that day and there's of that night and there's time, um, but it's definitely not like a force that it has to happen then. Yeah, and and this these contemplations continue. I mean, with Ernest Rossi yeah. and and I, we we know we actually did some genetic experiments and things, and we know yeah. that therapeutic experiences and these mental things keep going at least over the next two or three days. Uh, oh right, and, yeah. And there's yeah. there's this thing, and so your dreams, your early morning thoughts, uh, uh, yeah. those sort of all moments during the day, those sudden moments of insight where you were. Uh, uh, I I always used to love the 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 show House, the medical show House, where they're yeah. all struggling away to figure it out academically. But then he's sitting down, and a you know a chip paper rolls across the floor, and he goes, "Oh, I get it." <laughs> the, the suddenly the insight mm -hmm. comes out of uh, out of some other secondary momentary experience. But the, but it's the whole thing. Doors are opened, um, and, and doors are opened, or they're unlocked. Uh, but these yeah. opportunities, I love the, the word possibility. I talk about the possibility field and uh, that we get we get sort of stuck in the probability field, you know, those things that we know that we've seen before. And right. new, new stuff is a bit scary in, in, in our modern culture. Uh, right. And uh, so that's, that's probably one of the barriers that, that, that this overcomes is it because it calms you and relaxes you and, and uh, makes you less confronted by, um, by change uh, and alteration, I hope so. Uh, yeah, now we're sort of running along. We've had a beautiful thing. You know, time always just skates by as we do things. <laughs> I think one of the last things I want to say, and then I just wonder if there's something that 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 you want to sort of wrap us up with. But just yeah. training uh, in this, uh, you did yeah. some training. I know. Do you do trainings? What what is the what is the way that someone can become aware of of how to work with this uh, this process themselves as a therapist? Yeah, it's such a um, we're in very exciting and interesting times and related to that. And um, maybe just speaking from the context of United States and Colorado specifically, there's so much excitement around psychedelics. Right, we had the big maps had their big psychedelic. Um, science of psychedelics um, it was the largest yeah. conference that happened here in Denver that I went to over the summer and um, you know tens of thousands of people and so much excitement um, and I think with that is coming right kind of the, the before the double-edged sword of 
lots of trainings and things popping up like all over the place, whether in person or online. And um, I think to varying degrees of maybe quality. Um, my personal experience, what I would say is um, having had your own personal experiences with, right, in this case, we're talking about ketamine, with ketamine therapy, with, um, you know, doing trainings that have experientials. I Personally, I think that is as a baseline, right? There's some, um, there's some trainings that are all online and those can be great, but I would say maybe doing that, but making sure that you're also supplementing it with your own personal experience. Um, that can look like, you know, a traditional container of like, okay, you have a psychotherapist that offers ketamine that you're working with as your personal therapist, maybe along with having done a training that you're getting at least one or two experientials mm -hmm. and then ongoing what's, what's pretty beautiful. A lot of the um, providers I know, um, there's an opportunity to, um, do trades, right. With other therapists who are doing this work. So you guys could trade in holding space for each other in terms of ketamine experiences. So I think that's a big part of it. I mean, I, yeah, that there's a little bit of maybe actually not much, a little bit of dispute with this, maybe in the field. I think maybe a lot of it coming from therapists who have been more in the therapy world long-term and not in the psychedelic world. And they're coming at it from, well, this is exciting. I want to be able to offer it. Let me do the training so I can offer it. And I think a lot of us who are coming from more of the experiential piece of like, oh, psychedelics impacted us, like changed our life. So that's why we're wanting to offer them in the therapeutic sense. Um, just how important it is to have had your own deep experiences um, with the medicine that you're that you're wanting to guide with. Because while ketamine is maybe a little different in terms of the it's being a disassociate of a lot of the times clients are, you know, pretty um, physically still. Um, it's, it's not totally uncommon for, you know, like purging can happen with ketamine. People can throw up right as part of the and, you know, if you're looking at other psychedelics like psilocybin or especially ayahuasca, if you've not had that experience and you're watching someone go through that, it can be a jarring experience to watch someone writhing in pain or right or purging. Um, it can look like they are not okay. And if you have fear and if you're not, you know, um, solid in yourself that like trusting what's happening because you've experienced it and because you know the container's safe and all, you know, all of these other factors, that, I think that's where then we can have the issue of make, causing harm for a client in a vulnerable state going through something. And if we're not trusting, then they're going to know that we're not, they can feel that. And then that, you know, then you can get into like, oh, we're causing harm. Um, so I think the personal experience um, is a really big piece, I think, of the process of the training component. Um, but in terms yeah. of, I don't know, specific trainings, is that helpful to kind of ones to recommend or is that kind of what you're asking? Uh, yeah, no, they, have, is there some that, that you particularly think are, are, are valuable? I mean, I think MAPS, right, M-A-P-S, the, the nonprofit that in the States at least has been the one really doing the, the federal trials and, and leading this for the last couple of decades, any training um, that they um, are offering or signing off on, um, I think is going to be like the standard bearer. They have their MDMA for PTSD therapy training. These are like year long trainings. They're, they're not cheap. You know, they're looking at 10 to 12 grand, but they're over a course of a whole year, you're getting experientials with those. Um, Naropa actually has a, now a psychedelic certificate program that I think is nine months long. And they've partnered with maps because a lot of my clinicians were um, at, at, a lot of my professors at Naropa were clinicians on maps trials. So Naropa certificate is another great one. Um, and then there's other ones that are more of like a, like in terms of for ketamine, where it's more of a four or five day intensive where you're going, getting really intensive learning and getting a couple experientials. Um, yeah. I, th those would be the ones that I'd recommend off the top of my head. Yeah. yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that's what it needs. It needs to have some kind of centrally reliable organizing framework. Uh, and uh, so that's terrific that, that it's already getting that. And this, I mean, the idea of a therapist needing to uh, experience therapy in order to be able to understand that, I mean, that goes way back to Freud and everywhere. Mm -hmm. So there's absolutely, uh, no one should be surprised at, um, at, at that. So be thoughtful about this, be experiential, be knowledgeable, uh, be practiced. Uh, uh, all these things just sound like uh, very good uh, 
good, healthy ways of of being uh, professionally responsible. And I think this, those are the, those are the basic elements that we should apply to all trainings that are offered. You go, is it thoughtful? Is it experiential? Is it deep? Is it uh, reliable? And and if it's not, then be very very cautious. So uh, beautiful, beautiful stuff. And. So having done that and and uh, the, the 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 aspect of everyone on the podcast, they're all going, oh, look, I've just finished my commute or my run. It's amazing how they turn off after they've done that. So let's wrap up now. Uh, there's so yeah. much stuff in here for people to to contemplate. This you've got to listen to this podcast two or three times. Uh, if you're gonna if we're wrapping up now, is there something I've missed, or is there something just particularly just to round off the uh, the session you'd like to say? Hmm. Yeah, and maybe informed by like the focus of the work that I do of, of working with men, um, just how, you know, sometimes for a, for a client like the, especially a male client I found right in our, in our culture, especially in the most recent kind of generations of just how that barrier can be to just reach out for support, you know, and how that can be the biggest step sometimes the big, the biggest barrier for men, um, yeah, if they're, I mean, not sure exactly the demographic of your podcast audience, if they're listening to this, they must have some interest in right? psychotherapy and that. But yeah, if there's just making that connection to reach out or, or ask a friend if they have, you know, know a therapist. I've just found that with the men I work with, because off, oftentimes, probably about half of them are men who have never been in therapy before and coming into it for the first time. And just, you know, as simple as just having a container, somebody who, um, is impartial in terms of, you know, they don't have another role in their life, but they're not impartial that I don't care, but impartial that it's not right. You're not, I don't know if you're worried about it impacting things with other relationships negatively in your life of just having someone to come and talk to every week or every other week who is going to um, be there for you. Um, just the importance of that. Um, and then maybe with the, with the psychedelic component piece, I mean, again, I'm in this, the, you know, in the culture that I'm in here in Denver, which, which is um, very open-minded and a lot of people are exploring with psychedelic use on their own. And I think that's amazing and empowering and beautiful. And there's really um, importance of not doing that journey on your own in terms of getting out of balance of doing it on your own, right? Um, finding communities to talk with, maybe if you're not maybe doing ketamine therapy with your uh, therapist, but you're exploring with psychedelics on your own, um, finding a therapist that you can freely discuss that with, like the integration piece, you know, that they're not going to, that they're going to be able to support you with it. So it's not such an isolating experience. Cause I don't know how in Australia, like in the States though, there still is so much, you know, of the, the lingering um, effects of prohibition from previous, you know, times where it's like, yeah, as a kid, we grew up with the war on drugs and a lot of, um, a lot of messaging that was meant to protect. But I think now we're seeing is, is doing a lot of harm because there was a lot of misinformation in those messages that you know has constricts around things that can be beautiful opening experiences when done done in the right set and setting and when we know that the substance we're taking is what we think it is and we're not you know and it's not dangerous to us so just encouraging to people to reach out for support in, in those ways yeah we're we're an interpersonal species and and we we yeah. learn from each other and we we grow from from connecting and uh, so this is a beautiful thing and uh, i love the individualist but uh, i'm sorry uh, he doesn't really exist where what <laughs> what exists is uh, individuals who are uh, inextricably connected so we it's a beautiful thing to hear you talk about this this extraordinary um uh as you say, it's a new idea because we've had a lot of misinformation. We've had to cover, get away from all that. We've had a lot of misuse. There's always a, a, a good way of using things and a not a good way of using things. And now we're moving into a good way of using these things. And I want to thank you so much for giving us some of your time and sharing so much of this experience, your personal and your professional. So thanks, Kendall. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Richard. My pleasure. <laughs>